Have you ever felt as though there's something not quite right with the world? As though things were going wrong. It's like they weren't the way they were meant to be. We don't have to turn on the news to see the violence and the division and the abuse, the abuse and the injustice. You know, we can see it in our lives around us pretty regularly. We see it all the, all the time, actually. Let me be frank. Or Bill. Come on. Let me be honest. Life is not the way God intended it to be. Life is not the way God intended it to be. We know this to be true. Even if we don't want it, want to admit it. Our present reality is not the way God wants it to be. And the reason for this reality is very simple. It's a word we don't like to talk about, but we, I will because I have a microphone. Sin. Sin. The way in which we miss the mark. Instead of listening to God and following his voice, we succumb to other voices in our lives. Listening to the wrong voice. Have you ever listened to the wrong voice in your life? I have. Like little things, even. I remember my mom. If so-and-so told you to jump off cliff, would you do it? <laughs> yeah. They're cool. Listening to the wrong voice, right? It's simple, but in reality, it's what, what happens. And we, we used to come to that wrong voice for so many different reasons. Temptation, the, the, the allure of it, the, the perspective of what it might, might, it might bring, the, 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 the get-rich-quick. It's going to solve all my problems. If I only eat pickles and drink vinegar every day, I'm going to lose 100 pounds a week. Right? If only I love bread and butter pickles. <laughs> Listening to the wrong voice can lead us astray. And we've talked about that some over this, over this series. And as the series comes to an end, we know that, that listening to the wrong voice and, and, and falling into the trappings of sin is what led Adam and Eve out of the garden. It cost them to the garden, and paradise was lost. But deep inside of them, there was this desire to return to paradise, because there was an ideal. There was this ideal of what it was supposed to be, to return to the king's garden. You see, we still long to experience that life, don't we? That, that way that God created us to live, we still long to live in the garden, that's why we know that there's something wrong. Because we can think there's a better way. We can perceive it. We can capture it in our minds. Throughout the Old Testament, living in the garden of God was, was talked about as living in the promised land. And this land that, that God would, would give to his people, it was meant to be a blessing that would in turn become a blessing to others. And that's what we talked about last week as we talked about Abram and it was, it was a place of, of joy, of, of gladness, and, 
and of thanksgiving. It was, a place, it was to be a place of justice. It was to be a place of righteousness, of salvation. It was to be a place where the people of God walked with God again, as Adam and Eve did in the garden in paradise. And Israel struggled to embrace that life that God called them to, which, which is why when Jesus came into this world and he started his ministry, he kept calling people to live into this life that God wanted them to live, to experience. And his message was really simple and straightforward. If you remember in Jesus' early ministry, um, he, he, he said his, his whole message was simple. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his message. And in the original language, you know, we, we, we have the stereotype. When someone says repent, we go, ooh, chills. Don't want to talk to that guy. Right? But in the re- original language, in the Greek, the, the word um, repent is metanoia, which means to change your mind, to, to, see, to, to turn and see, to think and act differently. Jesus didn't call people to change their location, like go over there to the promised land, to the kingdom of God, go over there to that place to move. He called them to change their heart and their lives because the promised land was, no, was not a physical place, was not a physical location. Instead, it was an attitude of the heart that gave direction to, one per, to a person's life. You see, Jesus didn't talk about the promised land. He, he lived it. He lived it out fully in his life. He, he was the embodiment of the kingdom of God. He embodied it in the world. So when he talked about the kingdom of God and it being at hand, he meant literally, quite literally, that the kingdom of God was like at hand, like hands, like right here. It's right here, folks. The kingdom of God is right here at hand because I'm right here. That's what Jesus was saying. The kingdom of God is at hand because I'm at hand. I'm right here with you in the world. You see, in Jesus, we see the life God wants for us and what God wants for us to experience and for what God wants for us to live out. Jesus taught about the kingdom. I don't know how many of you have read the Bible and like to take notes and numbers, but Jesus taught about the kingdom of God 118 times. Did anybody know that? Show of hands. You all counted it, right? No, I'm just kidding. 118 times. Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. And there are, but there are countless other examples where the kingdom of God is literally poured out into the world in Jesus' life. So in Luke 8, for example, we hear this story. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and started out. And they set sail across, and Jesus Settle down for a nap. But soon a fierce storm came down on the lake, and the boat was filled with water, and they were in real danger. And the disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Master, Master, we're going to drown! And when Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and the waves, and suddenly the storm stopped, and it was calm. Then he asked them, where is your faith? And the disciples were terrified and amazed. 
Who is this man? They asked each other. When he gives a command, even the winds and the waves obey him. You see, so Jesus, Jesus is calming a storm. And the disciples are so amazed by his power that they're, they're like, who is this guy? Bearing in mind that they've been walking with this guy for a little bit of time, and he's already done some pretty amazing miracles. But they're saying, who is this man? But it doesn't end there, because... The story keeps going in the next verse. So they arrive in the region of Gennesaret, across from the lake of Galilee, and just as Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. For a long time he had been homeless and naked, living in the tombs outside the town. As soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down in front of him. Then he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? Please, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him, and the spirit had often taken control of him. Even when he was placed under guard and put in chains and shackles, he simply broke them and rushed out into the wilderness, completely under the demon's power. Jesus demanded, What is your name? Legion, he replied, for he was filled with many demons. The demons kept begging Jesus not to send them into the bottomless pit. There happened to be a large field or a large herd of pigs feeding on a hillside nearby, and the demons begged him to let him enter the pigs, let them enter the pigs. So Jesus gave them permission, and the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the, pigs, the pig herd plunged into the steep hillside and into the lake and drowned it. When the herdsmen saw it, they fled to the nearby town and surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened, a crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been freed from the demons. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what had happened told the others how the demon-possessed man had been healed, and all the people in the region begged Jesus to go away and leave them alone, for a great wave of fear swept over them. So Jesus drives out demons. Everyone else, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is like just a perfect picture of, of us sometimes. Everyone else had given up on this guy. You know that friend? <laughs> Maybe you don't know that friend. I got this friend. Everyone, up, everyone else had given up on this guy. In many ways, he was a spiritual zombie, the walking dead. But Jesus restores him to life. And this is a picture of the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is to be a place of life and healing and power. Jesus gives us a glimpse of this kingdom and all that he did. It was a place of forgiveness. It was a place of grace. It's a place of love. You see, Jesus always offered grace and mercy to those in need. He welcomed outcasts. He forgave sinners. He, he called everyone to new life. And he, he created community for those who had been outcast. He redeemed them by the love and grace and power of God. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. When life in the promised land, this is what life in the promised land was meant to be. 
Jesus' own life reveals to us how it is possible in the here and the now. And we witness it in the presence of Jesus. Jesus calls to embrace the kingdom of God in this life. Here and now. And that's why I like this story. Because the man at the tombs is a reminder of Jesus' call to do this now. Not like sometime back then or sometime in the future. It's an invitation to live again in God's garden right now. Let's look again in Luke 8. Jesus tells another story a little bit before this happens about a sower who goes out to sow some seeds. It's a pretty familiar story to many. A farmer went out to plant his seeds. As he scattered it across the field, some seeds fell on a footpath where it was was stepped on and the birds ate it. Other seed fell on the rocks and it began to grow But the plant soon wilted and died for lack of moisture. Other seed fell on the thorns that grew up with it and choked out the tender plants. Still other seed fell on the fertile soil. This seed grew and produced a crop that was a hundred times as much as had been planted. When he had said this, he called out, Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Through Jesus, God is planting a garden. And we're the soil. And God wants to create in us not like a plot of land. He wants to plant in our hearts and our lives. God wants us to experience life in his garden the way that it was meant to be. The way that God intended it to be. So he gives us the seed and the potential, the potential to experience that life. And it's up to us to decide what we do with it. See, we can disregard the seed. We can allow the seed to to find a home but then turn away from it when things get hard. We can even experience the life that God wants for us but then turn away when the worries of this life hit a little too close to home for comfort. Or we can allow that seed to take root in our hearts and in our lives and create something new and unique. This parable that Jesus teaches just before these past two events tell us that the kingdom of God can still be experienced. God's garden can grow in our lives today. But it will only grow if we're willing. Only grow if we're willing to let it happen. You have to let the seed grow. We have to be willing to receive, be willing to receive what God has for us. We must be willing to nurture and care for the life and faith that God gives to us. We need to be willing to work to bring about that harvest. You see, the the kingdom of God is a garden that God wants to plant within us and the life that God desires that we experience. But it's also a way of life, of working in this world. Make no mistake, this is where we get confused sometimes. It is a life of work. We are the workers called into building this kingdom. Like Jesus, we are the ones who are to offer grace and forgiveness, to work for justice, to share the love, grace, and power of God to others. 
We don't do this work to receive the gift of life. We do the work to bring the gift of life to other people. In God's garden, the gift, this gift of life is a gift freely given by God, but, but once we let that reality sink into our lives, once we realize that it's a gift that's been given to us, we begin to see the way that we think, live, and love shift as we give ourselves to seeing God's garden grow in and around us. I want you to consider your life for a minute. Let's, let's be reflective. Okay, everyone, I want you to think, I want you to shift your focus for just a minute, okay? Go ahead and shake off and reset for a minute to start going inward. I want you to think about your life and the people who have invested in you. Who's the one spiritual mentor that invested in you that you could name today that had the most significant impact in your life? Who's the person, who's, who's the reason why you're here today? I know it's not me. I'm not here because of you today. I'll be honest. Living in God's garden is a gift. We're all here because somebody gave their lives for the building of the kingdom in our lives. I'm here today because Pat Davis invested time each week preparing and engaging Sunday school lessons to a small group of rowdy country kids in a town of 200 people. From kindergarten to sixth grade, there's four or five of us every Sunday. I don't know how she did it, but she did every week. I'm here because of Pat Davis. I'm here because hardworking men and women gave up their vacation time and volunteered as camp counselors at Wesley Woods and modeled to me what servant leadership is. I'm here because of them. I'm here because Pastor Scott Otis served communion at Wesley Woods when I was 13 years old and called me by name saying, Tim, this is your peace and, and communicated to me communion in a way that I understood and I had a Holy Spirit moment where I gave my life to Christ at Wesley Woods. I'm here because of Scott Otis. I'm here because Roger Luddux, an air traffic controller, took me under his wing while I was deployed for Operation Enduring Freedom during a deep and dark place in my life, and he took me under his wing and rescued me from a dark, spiraling life that was spiraling out of control, and he taught me what a life of faith could be. I'm here because of Roger. I'm here because my parents showed me that faith was more than merely showing up to church. As I watched my father read his Bible in his chair and as we served in the community together. I'm, because, I'm here because of those people and because of countless more who work for the kingdom of God. And I think we all have those stories. We're all here because somebody did something to build the kingdom in our lives. And now it's our time. Generation after generation has cared for and tended to God's garden. And now it's our turn and our time for us to change our thinking, our loving and our living and work to help people experience more of the life that God has called us to live.
Today, we're the ones who are being called to work in the fields. We are the ones whose lives need to bear much fruit. And this means that we are the ones who must give ourselves to the work of God in his vineyard. And so how do we do it? What work can we do? How can we help others experience life in the garden? How can we change our thinking and our living and our loving so that we desire to work in and for God's kingdom and not our own? Last week, we talked about how we are managers of all that God has given us and that we're not the owners. Everything is God's. One day, we'll each be held accountable for all that God has entrusted to us, all of his possessions, for each item. And I believe that one day we will undergo well, what, what I would call a performance evaluation in front of the throne. And God will hold us accountable for our stewardship of his assets. And, God will, and I wonder, is God going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant? And I think it depends on our performance. And I think God's going to look at a couple of things. I think he's going to look at things like how devoted have we been to God? How have we used the time that God has given us on this earth? How have we used the spiritual gifts and abilities that God has handed us to use for his glory? And how have we managed our money? And have we used it to bring him honor? I give financially to God because it's an act of faith. Money is one of the hardest things to part with. It takes trust in God and it takes faith to give. And that's why it's a mark of spiritual maturity and an expression of faith in our spiritual growth plan at Redeemer. When my retirement account seems to have more bad months than good, or bad quarters than good, I still choose to give to God through the local church significantly and with great joy because my investment here, my investment here has greater impact on this place, not necessarily just on this place, but in eternity. The money may go to one of a million things, but the investment I make in God's garden is a treasure that's built in heaven. And that is why we affirm with our commitments today and, and today on Consecration Sunday, that is what we, that is what we affirm. What we commit to God is an investment in the building of God's kingdom. And it's our time to give ourselves to the work of the kingdom. Let's pray. God of all grace and of all love, all that we have is yours. You have planted a seed in us, and now we humbly ask that you would see it grow to maturity. As we commit our hearts and our lives to you this day, we prepare to commit a portion of the blessing that you have given to us and the means of finances, and we offer without expectation of return and trust as we seek to live into your kingdom on this earth. We pray in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior.